ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're uh, taking a, a break from James, just the book of James, just for uh, one Sunday to put our community fair, the highlighting of our Sunday school classes on this side and our home groups on this side, to put these things in context. We'll be teaching from Acts chapter 2 this morning. As we shift books, it's important to uh, consider that we're also shifting the genres of the Bible a little bit. In other words, the, the type of literature that we're, that we're studying. Um, and in order to, uh, you may have heard me use this, this little story before, but there was um, one person who decided to study the Bible in a particular way. They decided that they would uh, just open their Bible and, you know, pick a verse. And wherever their finger landed, they would pick that verse and read that verse and then think about, okay, well, how does this verse apply to me? And so one day they opened their Bible, picked a verse, and the verse was, uh, Judas went and hung himself. And it was like, well, hmm, I'm not, not quite sure how to interpret that. So they said, well, I'll pick another verse. So they closed their Bible, opened it up again, found a verse, and it says, ye, go and do likewise. And they said, well, uh, I'm not sure with that one either. So they closed their Bible, opened it up again, picked a verse, and it said, What you do, do quickly. And use that story just to say it's important when we're studying the Bible to not only read the surrounding verses and to know the context of what we're, what we're reading, but also to know the, the type of literature that we're reading, the genre that we're reading in the Bible. James, the book that we've been studying, is an, an epistolary literature, and it's, it's a type of literature that gives many commands. You've heard Pastor Nick probably the last few weeks say that this is, this is imperatival language. These are imperatives that James is giving. In other words, walk in wisdom, get rid of sin, these t- this type of instruction. It's, always, it's often imperatives. When we approach the book of Acts, however, we're, we're, looking, at, we're looking at history. It's the same with uh, Judas hung himself. We're, we're looking at history. The, the idea is to give information, not to necessarily say, you go do the same thing. We have to be careful about the application there. But in the book of Acts, what we have is what s- some scholars have called holy history. Holy history. It's a time when God is acting in a very unique way in the midst of the church. You see, even in Acts 1 and 2, that the Spirit descends on the apostles and those who were following Jesus, and they're speaking in tongues, and it says, uh, you know, flaming tongues. God is revealing Himself in a very clear way. And so some have called this holy history. And what that means is that as we read this, while we're going to read about the church in Acts chapter 2 and the way that this church uh, organized themselves. And what we'll see is that God blessed this church incredibly. And as we read it, it's not that our church has to do exactly the same things they did in exactly the same way. It's not the imperatives that we find in James. But it is to instruct us. This is a church that, as we'll see, God was adding to their numbers daily. I'm not sure why we would not want to follow the example of a church that God was blessing in that way. And so as we read it, it is history, but it's a a holy history. God used and blessed this church as they were filled with the Spirit and walked in the Spirit. So, 
Let's read in Acts chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 41 this morning. Picking up for where Pastor Nick left off and in his reading earlier. So beginning in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it informs us of the work that you would do in our lives through Jesus, your son that you would save us, that you would redeem us of our slavery to sin, and that you would make us new, as we've seen this morning through baptism. Lord, we thank you that you instruct us in the way that we should go, that we should no longer walk in evil, but that we should do good. And Lord, we thank you for how your word teaches us about the early church and the way that they walked with you and sought to obey you. Lord, please give us insight this morning through your word. Give us wisdom. And may we at Crosspoint, Lord, in 2013, may we be a church that really seeks to honor you and to glorify you, Father. May we not be content with being mediocre disciples, but may we strive to be fully faithful in all that we do. Lord, to be a community that brings you glory and that you might add day by day, to the number among us who are being saved. Because that means you are rescuing people and bringing them from death to life. And in that, we should rejoice, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. I hope that you've opened your bulletin and found uh, the notes there and a sheet of white paper. Uh, The first thing that we want to look at this morning as we consider this text is that A community, this community of Christians, is birthed by the gospel. Is birthed by the gospel. I really enjoy reading and thinking about the origin of of successful businesses. For instance, you know, Walmart began in 1950 as this small country store called Walton's Five and Ten. It was a small store in a small town in Arkansas. And in 1962, Mr. Walton, he used 95% of the capital from that store to open the first actual Walmart. And then by 1967, he had 24 stores. And by 75, he had 125 stores worth $340 million in sales. By 2005, Walmart had $312 billion in sales and 6,200 facilities, 3,800 of which were outside of the U.S., I know a lot of us have kind of a love-hate relationship with Walmart, but it's pretty incredible that just this remarkable growth over about a a 60-year period. 
about a 60-year period. And we often think about that a company like Walmart, we, we credit its growth to you know, hard work and some ingenuity. One man, multiple people, really, but this one man had a vision, and then he carried it out, worked hard, and he was creative, and the business boomed. You think about Apple, it's somewhat similar. It started very small. It started in the garage of this small home in California. If you look it up, you can see the home of Steve Jobs' parents, and it's this very small home where they built the first Apple computer. And now we all know where Apple is today. Bass Pro Shops, who I'm sure all the women in here love and go there often. It started in a small section of a liquor store. I mean, the son just asked his dad, can you just carve off a little bit of room where I can put some bait and some tackle here, and I'll just start selling it out of your store? He said, sure. Well, now you have Bass Pro Shops and Denim today and many other places. But we, we credit these businesses, you know, and the success to some hard work and some ingenuity. And then, but if you want to consider a different type of origin, even a religion, Islam, it, it started small, it was spread through some preaching, but really to a very great deal, you find that Islam spread immediately after Muhammad supposedly received these visions from Allah, it was spread through military conquest. And this is how Islam began to spread just rapidly. I use these illustrations to say that the church is in a world of its own when it comes to origins. How it began. It didn't begin because of hard work and ingenuity. It didn't begin even through military conquest. Not to say that the church hasn't used some of the world's methods sometimes. It has. But not here. Not in the beginning. What's incredible about the growth of the early church and the beginning of the church is it didn't have anything to do with military conquest. But somehow the church not only grew numerically, but geographically in this short, short period of time. Even liberal scholars have trouble explaining it. And not only did it grow rapidly, but it's lasted over 2,000 years. That's a little bit longer than Walmart, Apple, or any of those. They still have some things to prove as to whether they're going to make it or not. You know, the only thing to credit the growth and the start of the church is the preaching of the gospel confirmed by the testimony of the Spirit. This is the only thing. This is what Nick read this morning. It was the preaching of the gospel confirmed by the testimony of the Spirit. This is what started, birthed the community that is the church. We'll look at what Peter preached that started this 3,000 souls. I think we can put that on the screens real quickly. The gospel message was central to this community. There were six stages that... Uh, John Stott summarized these six stages of Peter's uh, preaching that led to this conversion of 3,000 souls. And this is how he summarizes it. First, he talks about Peter and his preaching, talks about Jesus' life and ministry. That Jesus was a historical figure, but that was clearly attested to by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed through him. But not only did Jesus live, but it says he also died. 2.23 of Acts. This man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, they executed and nailed him to a cross. But then he was raised from the dead. 
You see, his death has historical and theological implications for our lives. God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. And then he was exalted. So then exalted to the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out, Jesus poured out what you both see and hear. And through that, through this testimony of the Spirit, God is saving people. Peter says to them, how do we respond? He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then through this, God creates a new community. You see, what Peter says is, save yourselves from this perverse generation. This is what he tells the group of people. And here's the truth that Peter is making here. Either we will align ourselves with those who are being saved, the community of faith, or we will align ourselves with those who are being condemned and those who will perish into destruction. Either way, we won't go there alone. We will either be with a community of faith who trusts in Jesus for salvation, or we will be with a community of death that will be destroyed because of their unbelief in Christ. You see, the reason I go through all this is because this is the message that not only created this community of faith, but that they would walk in for the rest of their time. This is the message that they would continue to proclaim that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died at the hands of sinners and that he rose from the dead to pour out salvation on all who would believe. It says in verse 47 of the passage we're looking at, the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. What this verse means is that God is the one who adds to our number. It's not us. We don't add to our number. And that this community continued to proclaim the same message. They believed that it was the gospel that God used to bring people to salvation. Friends, this is the most important thing that we do as the church. We proclaim the message of Jesus. That he lived and died and rose again so that all people could believe and have eternal life. And have joy in God. And dwell with him forever. This is the gospel and it was central to this community. But there there are two parts to the statement that I'm making here. First, that community is birthed by the gospel. The gospel is central to the community. But the second part of that is that community is central to the gospel. Community is central to the gospel. Look at the transition from verse 41 to 42. It says that those who received his word were baptized and there were added about 3,000 souls. We, sometimes when we come back from, people come back from a mission trip, they, you hear about these incredible stories of thousands of people becoming believers. And it's, it's a wonderful story. But the question we sometimes ask is, what happens after that to those people? Well, look what happened to these people after they became believers. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, immediately after becoming a follower of Jesus, people were integrated into 
the church. Not only for this, so that they could be in a large group setting and and hear preaching, but also they became a part of groups, smaller groups of believers, where they fellowshiped, it said. They ate and shared meals, and they prayed for one another. This fellowship word, it's important to this whole text. And it simply means to share something very deep in common, to be of one heart and mind. Commenting on this verse, one pastor wrote, God did not add to the church without saving people. In other words, there was no nominal Christianity. When he added to the church, they were new believers, fervent believers. Nor did he save people without adding them to the church. In other words, there was no solitary Christianity. And so what, what's the point? Well, speaking about Cross Point specifically, Friends, we we see this time together in which people are here, visitors are here, as very important. Very important, where people come together to sing together and to hear God's word proclaimed and then also to witness things like baptism, new believers who are devoting themselves to Christ. Very important. But we also recognize that there are deficiencies to this time. That this time can't solve every problem that we have. And those things can only be compensated for through personal relationships, intimate relationships, and some small group interaction. Uh, One writer, he said, and I've, I've shared this with some of you before, to assume that discipleship occurs through preaching is like going into the nursery, spraying milk on the babies and saying they've been fed. Spraying milk on the babies and saying they've been fed. You see, you can come here, all of us can come here, we can hear God's word, and it can seem like everything's going great in our lives. We've got everything together. When the reality is, when we go out of this place, our family is broken, our marriage is broken, and we don't have enough money to pay the rent. We hate our jobs, and our lives are miserable. And no one would ever know that. And everything that we hear on Sunday... That's the only time we give any consideration to it. That can be the reality in our lives, and no one here would ever even know it. But you see, these believers, they not only heard the word and said, yeah, I'll I'll get on with that, I'll, I'll walk that, I'll follow Jesus. But it says, those believers immediately devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Friends, they became a part of every aspect of the church. If the doors were open, they were there. And not only did they get together at the church house, but they got together in homes every time they could be with other believers. So the point we're making here is that community is central to the gospel. Being together is central to being a follower of Jesus. You don't do it alone. No person in the church is an island in himself. Herself. So, community is birthed by the gospel. It's the gospel, the message of Jesus, that brings together this group of people. But then, the gospel also gives birth to a community. People who are devoted to each other and to seeking one another's growth in the faith. Please know that some type of independent faith, an only Sunday faith, Friends, it is foreign to the Christianity of the Bible. They wouldn't recognize it. 
That's Christianity. To be a Christian is to be a part of a community. Secondly, this morning, and the only other main point, is that community is not only birthed by the gospel, but it's also sustained by the gospel. Again, this message of Jesus, of His life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, is is not just what starts us and gets us going, but it's what continues to fill us and keep us going. So first, the early church studied the gospel together. They studied the message of Jesus and the work of Jesus together. So first we see this in verse 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But then again in verse 46. Day by day they attended the temple, breaking bread in their homes. It says they, they attended the temple. This is a, probably a time of teaching and prayer. So the question we want to ask ourselves is, what was the apostles' teaching? What is it they were devoted to and studying? Well, I, I want to make what I, I believe to be a very uh, a reliable suggestion, a responsible suggestion here. You see, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had given the disciples an entirely new way of seeing the Bible than ever before. I'm going to read to you a few verses, and these should be up on the screens. Luke 24 25 through 27 and verse 32. You'll remember that Jesus was walking on a road with some disciples, and this is after his resurrection. And these disciples are discussing the things that have gone on related to Jesus with his crucifixion and his burial. They have no idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they have no idea that it's Jesus who's walking on the road with them. And so they're astounded that Jesus seems to be uh, unaware of the things that have gone on. So, verses 25 through 27 and 32, Jesus said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. And they said to each other later, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Never before had these people considered the Old Testament as always pointing to Jesus himself. Chapter 24, verses 44 through 47 Jesus says to the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it stands written that the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, believe strongly that the the apostles were whatever they were teaching, whatever book they were teaching from, their Bible was the Old Testament. So whatever passage they were studying, all of it had been enriched by Christ as the fulfillment of all the Scriptures. He was the Son of God. 
He was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was the greater King David. He was the greater lamb of the Passover of Exodus to be slain not for the redemption of people from slavery in Egypt, but for the redemption of people in slavery to sin. We were studying Judges in Sunday school a little while back. Some of you will remember this. And one of the phrases, I would like for you to finish it for me if you're able. There was no king in Israel. Anybody remember that one? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We had the opportunity to, to study Judges and to see that phrase over and over again throughout the book of Judges. You know what the writer of the book of Judges was pointing towards? A righteous king. <laughs> A king who would come and lead God's people in God's ways. You know who fulfilled that? Jesus. He's the king. He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. So when the people devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, they were studying the Bible in light of Christ. But there were also these different levels to their study. So they were hearing the apostles teach in these set large group settings. People would gather in Solomon's portico in Jerusalem or wherever they went, and they would hear the apostles teach. But it would be absurd to say that they didn't talk about it later when they were gathered in these homes and eating bread and fellowshipping together. And so when it comes to application here at Crosspoint and how we seek to accomplish this of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, well, first, we do have small group Bible study. We even provide you with a book that helps you study God's Word all week long. You'll be taught the full counsel of the Scriptures through the lens of Christ's work, just like we did when we studied Judges. And then we have this time where you hear the Word preached. But in home groups, we want to provide an outlet where you, where you can discuss the word that has been preached. Friends, your, your pastor spends a great deal of time every week praying over how to share God's word with the people on Sundays. So we listen and we're eager to hear God's spirit speak to us. But we want to ensure that there's some accountability going on in that. And that when you leave from here, you have opportunity to discuss the things that are, you're struggling with, the sins you might have been convicted of, and be encouraged to go walk in faithfulness. So being devoted to the apostles' teaching, being devoted to the Scriptures, is not only a Sunday thing and something we do in isolation on our own, but it's something we do in community where we push one another towards growth and godliness. So, so the early church, they studied the gospel together. They did it together. But they also, they, they lived the gospel together. It wasn't just, it was a head thing. They wanted their minds to be transformed through the message of the gospel and through the word of God. But, but it was also a practical thing. They lived it together. You see, first in verse 44, the behavior of the church is derived directly from what they believe. Look at verse 44. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. This seems 
very simple, but sometimes I think, you know, some of us in here, we, we believe in the message of Jesus. We believe that God forgives people of their sins through Christ, but we can really get in some, some spats, can't we? I mean, they like blue and I like red. We just can't get along. I mean, we believe that, but we just, we, we just can't get along. You know, I think what keeps these people from di- not getting along, keeps them able to get along, is that peripherals don't get in the way. They're so excited about what God is doing and the message of Jesus that they're not letting these peripherals get in the way. They were unified by the central message of Jesus. This illustration helped me in understanding this. On my wedding day, I remember, and men, you can probably remember this, ladies, you can remember this. It was such a joyful occasion, and I I just remember walking out of the, the dinner afterwards, you know, when we're about to get into the car, everybody's going to see us off. And there was just this, these things going on in my mind, like, how could anything ever be wrong here? I mean, this is just incredible. This is great. I mean, we're going to be fine. We aren't going to have any problems. We're not going to fight. This is too perfect. And then that night, <laughs> like... You look at the toothpaste thing, you're like, what did you do to this thing? What? You see, you get caught up in the peripherals. I mean, they buy some, someone buys something, not they, not her. Just someone buys something that the other person didn't see as a responsible purchase. And you just have it out. I mean, not that we do that, but I've heard of couples who do. <laughs> but you get caught up in peripherals. You see, this happens in the church sometimes, a lot of times. We, we agree on the central message of Jesus that he died for our sins, that we would be reconciled not only to God, but to one another. But sometimes the peripherals just get in the way. That, well, you believe this, I believe this, I guess we've got to find another group. No, this church believed and they had all things in common. You see, what's going to happen is we encourage the, the gathering together of small groups through Sunday school and through these community groups. As you get close with people, you're going to have some trouble with people. But what it forces you to do is those one another's that the New Testament talks about where it says, love one another. Forgive one another. Some of you aren't in groups right now because you know this. It'll force you to do it. But you see, this is where we grow in godliness. This is where our godliness is really tested and we begin to even see our sin. So, the church lived the gospel together. They, their behavior was a direct extension from what they believed about who Jesus was and what He did for them. And then... They met each other's needs. This is, this is one way, in one of their behaviors. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Now, listen, this, this doesn't mean that everyone sold everything they had. You still have people in this passage who are meeting in homes, homes that are evidently owned by believers. But what it does mean is that when a need arose within the body, that someone said, I, I can meet that. I, I can do that. And so the, the challenge for us is that we, we live out of a heart of generosity that's placed there by Jesus and what He's done for us so that when a need does arise, we're willing to make sacrifices. 
We have extra money that we might have reserved for a hobby, but instead we say, they have things going on. There are some needs here that I want to help with that we need to take care of rather than using it for that. So they met each other's needs because of Jesus and what he'd done for them. And then they also, you see a a rhythm in what the disciples are doing. It says that day by day they attended the temple together and then they would break bread in their homes. You see, small groups didn't create cliques that became exclusive. Well, I've got my group and I'm going to hang with them. That's my group. Instead, you, you see them gathering together as one large group in which they were unified, but then dividing up into these homes so that they could share a meal and so that they could fellowship. It wasn't about being exclusive. It was just that well, we just really can't all be best friends with each other. It's just the way it is. In order to know each other's needs and in order to care for one another in the way that we need to and pray for one another in the way we need to, Listen, we've we've got to divide up sometimes just to care for each other. It's not about being exclusive. It's not about being a clique. It's just reality. It's just practical. And so there was this rhythm of being together as a large group as we are now, but then being together in homes in these small groups. You know, there's something intimate about a home. It's where life happens. And so Christians would gather in each other's homes to share life. Also, meals were done together and meals became a way of reflecting on the gospel. Look, you see this in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. But also then in verse 46, it says they they were breaking bread in their homes. Now, you need to know that this phrase, we need to know that this phrase breaking of bread, it's the same phrase used in the context of the Lord's Supper in the gospels. Jesus broke bread with the disciples. And that breaking of bread was a visual of the Passover. Of his body that would be broken for sins and for forgiveness of sins. So what the apostles did, you know, Jesus had said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so what the apostles did or what the church did is they made meals a specific way of reflecting on the gospel. You know, you don't have to have the pita bread that Miss Linda breaks up for us in order to think about the Lord's Supper. Nor do you have to have the little wafers from Lifeway that don't taste real well. They kind of make your mouth just taste nasty until you can get lunch and something to drink. You don't have to have that. The, The Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread is always a way, being with Christians, always a way of reflecting on the gospel. And what God has done for us and how God has provided for us. And so I want to encourage you, even even now, when you gather with other Christians just to eat a meal, friends, that that is a spiritual experience. It's a sacred experience because God has provided for you not only physical food, but spiritual food through salvation. So they did meals together. And those became a way of reflecting on God's grace and his provision. And then they grew in favor with all people. It says in verse 47, they were praising God and they had favor with all the people. Listen, this is not just Christians they were having favor with. 
This was all people. The implication is that this community that was growing intimate with one another, they didn't become recluses. They, they still were active in the places where they lived so that people saw their behavior and it attracted them. Believers or not. I want to share with you uh, uh, this apology that was written by uh, Aristides in the middle first century. Aristides was a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, and he, it was said that he gave this apology of Christianity. Apology meaning just in a, a defense of Christianity. He gave it when an emperor was visiting Athens. And what it does, and the reason I want to share it with you, it's a bit lengthy, is because it recognizes the behavior of the Christians as proof of the reality of God. And his work among them. And this is the question I hope we ask ourselves. Does your behavior. Prove in a sense. Give proof. Proof of. Who God is. That he exists. And that he changes lives. So Aristides says. But the Christians O king. While they went about and made search. Have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they received commandments, which they engraved upon their minds and observe and hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Therefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor do they bear false witness, nor do they embezzle what is held in pledge, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man, and whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they don't eat, for they are pure and their oppressors, the people who harm them, they, they appease them and they make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. They don't worship strange gods. They go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. And from widows, they don't turn away their esteem. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for His loving kindnesses towards them. You see, the defense of Christianity to the people who hated them was that their lives were changed. That they cared for each other in deep compassion that they sacrificed for one another. And not only for one another, but to all who were oppressed. They took care of orphans and they rescued them. I wonder if that's a defense of Christianity for you. Your life. Can you appeal to the change within your life as a defense of the reality of God and the Holy Spirit? Lastly, verse 47, it says, as we said at the beginning, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
One writer commenting here says, it's the Lord's prerogative to add new members to his own community. It is the joyful prerogative of existing members to welcome to their fellowship those whom he has accepted. You see, God is the only one who brings salvation. He brings it through the message of the gospel witnessed to by the Holy Spirit in the heart of all who would believe. But it's the responsibility of the fellowship to preach the gospel. Friends, if we're not preaching it, if we're not sharing it, then we shouldn't expect our congregation to grow. But we should accept those whom God would bring to salvation. Joyfully accept them. So, the gospel births a community. Community birthed by the gospel. But not only that, community is sustained by the gospel. It's the early church studying the gospel together that builds them up. And it's the early church living the gospel together that draws others, even, others in. So how do we do this at Crosspoint? This, this is the question. How do we honor God and be faithful to Him at Crosspoint as a church? I, I don't know if a map was able to work. No, not able to work. As, as we were thinking through this as a pastoral staff, as elders, what we do to help our people live out the gospel in this way, one of the things that we always have to consider is that our congregation is built up of people from all over Baton Rouge. I don't know if you've tried to go certain directions at 5.30 on a weekday afternoon, but there are certain directions you just can't go. I mean, you could take a nap in your car at 5.30 in the afternoon on I-10. So we have to think about how do we help our people, encourage our people to be able to meet together when you can't get here a lot of the days of the week. And so we hope we have designed this in a way that's helpful. Friends, we have Sunday morning Bible study. The point of Sunday morning Bible study is to emphasize biblical literacy. It's to reinforce the personal study of God's Word and group participation in that. And some classes have done a wonderful job, as you'll see this morning, of incorporating prayer for each other and even gathering on a regular basis outside of Sundays. Worship service. This brings all of us together to unify us as one body, to praise God, repent of sin, and grow in Christ. We, we all sit under the same message, which we believe through prayer is given through the Holy Spirit. This represents our devotion to the apostles' teaching. But friends, we want to make sure that there's more accountability in obeying God's word. And so this is one of the reasons that we've worked on home groups. And because home groups haven't been really a, a thoroughly outlined in the past, I, I want to spend just a, a little bit longer here. Here's what's going to happen in home groups, and here's what we're pushing for the, for the coming time. We've already trained, been working with leaders to encourage leaders and what they do. First, on Wednesday nights or whatever night, Tuesday through Thursday are the options for when a home group meets, you will spend time doing sermon discussion. It's application of God's word. It's repentance, whatever needs to occur during that time. That's what we want to happen at home groups. It's not asking you to do another study, but it's just maximizing on the study we already do. We want you to be able to go and discuss God's word with other believers and maybe even confess about areas that you've really lacked walking in God's word. It's fellowship through sharing meals and simply being together. It's reflecting on the gospel during that time. And since most of us spend most of our time close to where we live, 
Uh, hopefully, you're able to spend most of your time close to where you live. Friends, our neighbors should be the ones that we should be growing in favor with. Influencing them for the gospel. And for, the, for that reason, we want all of you, if at all possible, to be able to join a home group close to where you live. We don't want you to have to drive 30 minutes across traffic, through traffic, to be able to get to gather with a group of believers. We want you to be able to do that close to where you live so that you can, so for convenience sake, but then also so that you can minister to your neighbors, those people that you live close to. We've also charged each home group to develop a a ministry project. Each home group will not only study the word together, but they'll live the word together through doing ministry. And so each home group is considering what ministry project they should adopt. I know that one particular home group is thinking about adopting the cancer wing at a local hospital. A way to minister to nurses and staff who are working on that floor and hopefully also eventually to to patients. We're giving freedom here. We want you to be able to be creative in the ways that you minister. But we want our people to be able to minister together. This is the hope of home groups. This is what we want to see happening, happening is people ministering to each other. So we hope that if you're not a part of one of these small group ministers, excuse me, not small group ministers, small group ministries, we hope that you will become a part. We hope that if you're not gathering with a group of believers outside of Sunday, friends, that you will see that, that, that that's foreign to the Scriptures. Believers are called to walk together. You're not called to do it alone. We hope that you'll see the benefit and the joy of walking together as Christians, of leaning on one another and bearing each other's burdens. So the challenge this morning as we think toward an invitation is simply to ask yourself, am I walking in community? All that's expected in a believer and all that the believers did in Acts 2 of caring for one another, of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and then also to the breaking of bread, just sharing life for one another. Is that something that you're doing? Or would you say you're just too busy? I understand that our lives are chaotic, but friends, this is what we have been called to as believers. And so that's what I would ask you to think on. Are you finding ways to gather with Christians and to walk in accountability and in love for one another? So we're going to pray, pray and then invite the team to come up to lead us in a song. And you respond as you feel led. I hope at the end of the service, as you will stay for snacks and to see the opportunities that we're providing for new home groups that will hopefully be closer to where you live, and then for Sunday school classes if you are not a part of one already. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives, Lord, that transforms us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for dwelling within us, for convicting us of sin, and then leading us in righteousness. May we not quench your spirit by saying no and by rejecting you and your leading in our lives. God, may we be 
involved in one another's lives, devoted to the community and the ways that you want to work here within us. Lord, help us, each one of us personally, to see what you would like to do in our lives this morning. The way that you would lead us to be obedient to you. Jesus, thank you for loving us and for forgiving us. And it's in your name. Amen.